You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. And welcome to the second uh, Trinity staff together for yes event. Uh, in the lead up to the uh, referendum on the proposed abolition of the Eighth Amendment, um, we decided to have uh, a set of events where we could have different speakers from around college give different uh, fact-based perspectives. Uh, partly interwoven with personal perspectives uh, on uh, the Eighth Amendment. And uh, the reason we did this was because we saw that there was a lack of focus on the facts of the debate and the facts of the issues surrounding the Eighth Amendment, including abortion itself, but also the medical side, the legal side, and the social side. And for anyone who had any skepticism that it would be important to focus on facts in this debate, you need only watch last night's uh, Claire Byrne Live debate on the RTE iPlayer. Um, today we have four speakers uh, giving different perspectives, uh, their different perspectives on the issue. Uh, the format will be, we'll have 10 minutes for, roughly 10 minutes for each speaker, and then we'll use the remaining time uh, to throw open the discussion really to the floor so that we can well, basically hear what you think but also to ask any questions of the speakers that you might have. Our first speaker is Dr. Sarah Burke who is a research fellow here at Trinity in the Center for Health Policy and Management. <coughs> this initiative is taking place. And I had a brief moment of thinking it would be great idea to do something parish, and that's why I'm with you um, right now. Okay. I'm going to draw on uh, the current research project that I coordinate in Trinity, and it's called Mapping Pathway to Universal Healthcare in Ireland. Uh, and we're in the last year of this project, uh, and don't worry about the detail on the slide, but the objective of the research project has to sort of benchmark where Ireland stands in relation to the provision of universal health care, and then to devise possible pathways there in terms of financing and service provision, legislative change that would be needed to bring us up to the norm, which is in most OECD European and indeed in increasingly numbers of low and middle income countries to have universal health care, but it's something that Ireland has alluded to to provide. Just with a bit of a, a health warning, I've no, I'm no expert on abortion, I've never done any abortion specific research, so I'm drawing on my research on health systems but also on policy analysis, uh, and I have sort of straddled the research policy media sphere for over 20 years, starting uh, my first very junior research job was in the Department of Health. So I bring sort of different perspectives to uh, my analysis. A lot of the work we do academically around universal health care 
is driven by the World Health Organization's definition of what they call universal health coverage. Date we had discussing what's the difference between care and coverage, but they use this box uh, to sort of conceptualise the idea of universal health care, and I'm going to talk about care in an Irish context. And basically, they determine three dimensions to it. So, who's covered? To what extent are the people in the population covered? What services are covered under uh, the system of health provision in your country? And how financially protected are the people? So how much do the people have to pay, particularly out of pocket, to provide access to care? And we know that charges, no matter how small the charge, can deter access to essential care. So an example of that was when the government introduced as an austerity measure the charging of prescription drugs for people with medical cardholders up to that has been free. And having free access to medicines, particularly for poor people, but for the whole population, it's actually a very good thing, not a bad thing. And the minute you introduce a charge, even if it's a very small charge, it deters some people taking, uh, or, or taking that medicine. In this instance, we know that it has deterred, mostly it is older women who have multiple chronic diseases, older poor women who have multiple chronic diseases, and also people with mental health problems with chronic mental health problems. So it deters people from essential care. So these three components are really essential. Just, uh, again, don't worry about the detail of this slide. Uh, but what's important to know is that we've no universal health care in Ireland. We've no legal entitlement to care, which is a norm, again, in most other countries who have some form of universal health care coverage. And we have this extremely complex system of care. And if any of you just draw on your own personal experiences or your family members' personal experience, not to mind any research you might know of or carry out, in a way, the Irish health system is survival of the fittest. It's whoever has the most energy or the most money or knows the right person will get the care, not necessarily when they need it. But it's extremely hard to access healthcare in Ireland. And barriers are put in the way uh, to deter treatment, which in effect is a form of rationing. We also know that our medical cards, and at the moment about just over a third of the population of medical cards, so they get access to primarily just GP and hospital care without charge, but that it is quite an effective pro-poor measure. It's not, it's not the best measure, but it does uh, provide some of the poorest with undue financial hardship, but we also know it doesn't completely prevent them from having to spend money they cannot afford to spend on accessing care. And we, what we don't know, but we know there's a lot of, is there's a huge amount of unmet need within our system. This is, again, don't worry about the busyness of the slide, it's just to trigger my thoughts more than anything. We, as part of the research project, completely accidentally and coincidentally, we ended up working with the Oireachtas Committee on the Future of Healthcare, which was established after the formation of the last government in spring of 2016. And there's a long and I think an interesting story to be told there about why it came about. But if you remember, it took 70 days for the government to be formed. There was no natural majority party. Uh, Fine Gael were busy negotiating with independence. And during that time, Roisin Shortall saw the sort of vacuum that was there in there being no uh, government in place. And she tabled a motion for the door for there to be a cross-party committee on the future of healthcare. And 
uh, allegedly it was the first act of new politics was for Simon Harris, instead of always what happens when there's an opposition motion is they vote it down and they produce their own counter motion. And this was the first time ever that this hadn't happened. And they adopted this motion and agreed as part of the programme for government they were setting up with the independents to have this plan, 10-year plan for the future of healthcare. And because Roshan Shortall drafted that memo and subsequently the terms of reference to that committee, it had in it as a primary remit to deliver a universal healthcare. So it was just very fortuitous. <coughs> Uh, and we happened to be doing, we were two years into the project at that time, and some of our team presented to that committee during that summer, and by the autumn we tendered for work, and we ended up working with the committee for six months. And it's an extremely interesting application of our sort of research and theory around universal healthcare to the Irish context. One of the things the politicians kept on saying is, what happens in other countries? How do other countries do this? And why can't we apply it here? And most people in this room are probably quite good at understanding why we can't apply what happens in every other rational, functioning, healthy democracy to an Irish context. Um, but this is one of the pieces of evidence that Ray right, just walked into the room, dug out, because she was part of the research team, um, for the committee members. And basically it shows the range of services that's within the public health system package across seven, eight countries. And it's services that are available without charge, or with a very minimum charge, to all adults between the ages of 19 and 65. So this is not about the sickest or the poorest or people with special diseases. This is a general, everybody in the population of working age is entitled to these services. <coughs> and if you were to just put Ireland as uh, another category here, we would come up with no for the vast majority of these. For the vast majority of these services, you have to be able to pay, or to jump over some sort of access hurdle. You don't get them free of points to deliver on the basis of need. And just for the, in the interest of today, I did a quick Google of um, abortion provision in all these other countries. And in three of them, in Sweden, England, and Scotland, it's up to 22, 24 weeks uh, and available without charge. And in the other countries, Belgium, France, Germany, Holland, and Switzerland, no, no, Switzerland, lost a country there, but in the other ones, it's up to 12 weeks. So each of those countries provides a range of reproductive services, including abortion services, part of the whole package to the whole population. The end result of the work we did with the Roxas Commission was the publication of this report on the future of healthcare, known as the Slaughter Care Report. And again, you don't need to hear the detail of it. But if implemented, and that's still a big if, it would provide all people resident in Ireland with an entitlement to health and social care services. And critically, the committee decided with no charge of access to a range of services, including GP in hospital care and hospital care services. They also, and quite interestingly, uh, worked on their own definition of universal health care. So trying to apply the WHO definition to an Irish context and stipulating the services that would be listed under it. Um, the abortion committee, or the Eighth Amendment Committee, was doing its work at a parallel time. So even though the issue of abortion came up quite a lot in the Future Healthcare Committee, it was avoided because it was felt this was the uh, issue of the Eighth Committee. But certainly it would be my interpretation um, of the committee, of the recommendations in the report, that if 
there is a decision to repeal the 8th in Ireland, then all services will be provided to the entire population. So if you go back to the cube, every woman would be entitled to a range of reproductive health services free at the point of delivery, including abortion services. So that would be my interpretation if we repeal the 8th and if we uh, implement such. Okay, thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Before we um, circle back to uh, social work and social policy, we're going to hear from two uh, scientists. Uh, the first of which is my own colleague from the Trinity College Institute of Neuroscience, uh, Dr. Claire Kelly, who's an assistant professor here at Trinity. Um, in 2017, Thomson Reuters uh, identified the most highly cited scientists uh, in the world based on citations. We have three in Ireland, um, and Claire is one of them, and she's the only female scientist on the list. Despite her age, she's in this category. Um, and Claire will be telling us uh, about the Eighth Amendment, I think, from a neuroscience perspective. School of Psychology and, and the Department of Psychiatry, but I'm not actually going to talk with you about, um, about the Eighth Amendment from um, the perspective of uh, mental health. Um, I also, um, in my uh, role in the School of Psychology, I teach on um, morality, and that's the perspective I'm going to take here. But I just wanted to direct anybody who is curious about the um, uh, mental health aspect to two um, really nice physician papers that were released by the Psychological Society of Ireland just last week. Um, and they're two very short, um, evidence-based papers on um, abortion, the Eighth Amendment, and mental health. Um, so as I said, I have an, an interest in um, morality and um, moral development, and this is something I teach on the School of Psychology. Um, and I'm going to talk to you about it today to try and help us uh, perhaps to understand why we tend to break ourselves up into uh, these groups of us versus them and to try and kind of get insights into our positions and the, the very strong divided opinions, of course, on, on the eighth, um, maybe to try and uh, foster some understanding and also to think about how we can, um, how we can best um, uh, uh, try to make our position uh, known, particularly to those who are undecided. Um, so morality is something that has traditionally been the domain of uh, philosophers and theologians, but in recent years um, a science of morality has really burgeoned at the intersection of developmental, evolutionary, um, social psychology and neuroscience. Um, and I think some of the ideas from that science of morality can help us to understand why you know, pitching um, hard yeses against hard noes like was done on uh, last night's debate is, is really a, a waste of time, particularly at this um, stage of the debate. Um, so a major contribution of the science of morality, the scientific study of morality, has been a new understanding of where morality comes from. Um, and this, mor this understanding is very much uh, grounded in an evolutionary psychology perspective that suggests that um, several hundred thousand years ago, something in the ecology changed that forced um, our human ancestors to become collaborative hunters and foragers. So, uh, um, 
uh, the availability of very large animals to eat that required groups of people to hunt and then to, to, to uh, butcher and eat, um, or the ability to actually the tools that, that were available to kill these kinds of animals. But this change in the ecology forced our human ancestors to become social. Um, individuals, our ancestors who were less selfish, who were able to work together in groups, um, were much more successful than those who weren't. Um, they, left, they survived longer and left more offspring. And those offspring also exhibited and <coughs> propagated these collaborative um, and cooperative tendencies. And so what um, uh, uh, the um, moral psychologists believe is that these cooperative tendencies form the basis of what we now consider morality. So cooperation, working in groups, entails a tension between self-interest, something that drives, that drives all biological entities. We are driven primarily by um, our own survival and the survival of our own offspring. So cooperation entails a tension between that self-interest and a collective interest. There's a tension between me and us. And what moral psychologists think is that morality, our moral capacities, our ability to work together, to cooperate, to feel empathy for one another, um, to be altruistic, these um, arose as a solution to that problem of cooperation. Because morality, those capacities allow otherwise selfless individuals to work together um, and reap the benefits of cooperation. So the idea is that our moral minds evolved because our ancestors who cared more about one another, who helped one another, um, who uh, um, punished anybody who cheated or lied in the group, um, outcompeted um, their less morally minded neighbors. And so the idea is that um, morality emerges from brains that are designed by evolution to cooperate with others. And these capacities, empathy, altruism, gratitude, anger, um, uh, anger at cheating, um, uh, an emphasis on loyalty, all evolved for cooperation with other people uh, within our social group. And that's an important qualifier that I'll try to come back to. So um, this evolutionary perspective on, on um, morality forms <coughs> the basis of a really nice book by Jonathan Haidt um, that's very relevant to our, our current situation, so why good people are divided by politics and religion. Um, so he sees that, um, based on this evolutionary perspective, evolution has equipped us with these moral capacities, which he views as intuitions, that are immediate, reflexive, automatic, gut reactions that trigger the response that something is wrong. So these are, these are our immediate reactions to situations, our, our ability, our feelings of empathy, but also our feelings of disgust and anger that we don't have a lot of insight, we don't have a lot of cognitive um, or reason, rational insight into. These are things that we just feel and we often can't really explain very well. So Haidt argues that these automatic moral judgments run and have always run the human mind, have done so throughout our evolutionary history. And they really operate outside our conscious control to a large extent and are supported by quite ancient parts of the brain, so areas such as uh, the amygdala that are um, evolutionarily or phylogenetically quite old um, and common to uh, uh, mammals. So um, Haidt uh, uses a, a catchphrase that was actually coined by David Hume, who was a philosopher working in this area back in the 18th century, that reason is a slave to our passions. Our judgments and our behavior, particularly in the moral realm, are driven by our emotions and our gut reactions to situations. 
Our reason and intellect, according to height, come later. They're only used to justify the positions we have already reached based on these moral intuitions. So how can this help us to understand uh, our current situation and help us to understand the differing perspectives on the referendum? So a second key insight that um, Haidt has is that the fact that although these moral intuitions may be innate, the particular emphasis we place on different aspects of morality, the weight we give to them in terms of our own behaviour is very much shaped by our culture and even the subculture that we grow up in. So he talks about how humans have the same five taste receptors, universal, but we don't all like the same <coughs> food. And the food that we like is very much shaped by the culture that we grow up in and what we're exposed to throughout our development. He argues we have five moral taste receptors or moral foundations. And the relative emphasis placed on those moral foundations uh, in our culture and in our group within a culture shapes our morality. So I'm just going to quickly talk, through, talk about the, those uh, five moral foundations that, that uh, Haidt um, describes. The first one, sorry, is care and harm. He talks about the original evolutionary or adaptive challenge being the need to protect and care for children and then care for other people within those cooperative groups. Um, uh, so when we, um, when our, uh, uh, our moral foundation of care and harm is triggered, we feel the emotions, compassion, empathy, care. A second moral foundation is fairness <coughs> and reciprocity, um, driven by the need to, to work within a group to reap benefits from two-way partnerships. And uh, when um, that moral foundation is triggered, we feel anger, gratitude, or guilt. Um, uh, uh, when we feel that something related to the issue of fairness of recipro or reciprocity has been um, transgressed. A third uh, foundation is in-group and loyalty foundation, are, are, um, driven by the need to form co cohesive groups, successful groups that work together. And when, this, um, when we feel that this is transgressed, we feel pride, we feel group pride, or we feel rage at, uh, at traitors. A fourth one is authority and respect, um, driven by the need to, forward, um, to forge beneficial relationships within social hierarchies, which would always have been common to our ancestors. And the emotions that this evokes are respect and fear. And the final one is purity and sanctity. The original evolutionary challenge or adaptive challenge thought to be the need to avoid contaminants, the need to avoid disease and the um, chance of getting sick. Um, and the emotion that this uh, foundation triggers is primarily discussed. Now this is the, the, the foundation that is really kind of co-opted and captured by religion and religious, uh, um, religious ideology. Um, and I think you, know, you can kind of maybe get a sense of where I'm going with this. Um, what what um, Hyde has shown through uh, empirical research with hundreds of thousands of people time and time again is that people who are politically liberal have um, a morality that tends to be grounded in these first two foundations. So people who identify as politically liberal tend to care, care a lot about um, harm, um, tend to care a lot about fairness and equality and uh, reciprocity in society. Those who, who identify as more politically conservative, who could um, identify as the no side potentially in this debate, um, tend to have a morality that emphasizes all five of these foundations equally. Um, so to them, in-group uh, and loyalty, authority and respect, and purity and sanctity are just as important as, as preventing harm 
um, emphasizing care and as, uh, um, ensuring fairness in society. You can actually take, um, you can take, you, you can find out your own uh, moral profile by going to yourmorals.org, and this is a, um, this shows that um, distribution across the different uh, um, allegiances. So if you look at the red, we have over 60 or almost 60,000 people who identify as conservative, blue over 200,000 who identify as liberal, and you can see this very differential distribution. So I'm in green, and um, so unsurprisingly uh, uh, very liberal, but. Um, you know, you can see this, this clear differential where there's a high emphasis in, amongst blue um, placed on harm and fairness and lower on the loyalty. Not, it's not nothing, but it's lower, whereas um, uh, those who are politically conservative have a very equal endorsement across these five foundations. And you can do this 30 question, uh, 30 question um, questionnaire on uh, the morals, yourmorals.org. So my point is essentially people with different political ideologies have different cultures and have different fundamentally different moralities. And this is a lot to do with the way that our moral minds are set up, the way we're um, driven to identify within our own group and to um, you know, see people from our group as being us and see the people from the other group as them. And that drives a lot of um, other psychological uh, uh, um, uh, side effects in terms of our ability to, um, the fact that we gain our sense of identity from the groups that we belong, we gain a sense of self-esteem, a sense of belonging, and this can uh, really make people entrenched in the particular view that they have, particularly if they are very strongly on one side versus the other. And so the idea is that our, our moralities bind and blind us, and we're very, we're, we're blind to it, we're very, it's not really open to our conscious control. <coughs> but very quickly in the last minute, I'll, uh, it's not hopeless. Um, Paul Bloom is another psychologist who has emphasized that uh, we really need to return to an emphasis, emphasis on reason. He sees, there, um, sees, it as being a, there, sees that there is a sustained attack on um, humans' re, uh, capacity for reason and rational and intellectual thought. And he thinks that some of this is driven by this emphasis on empathy and the, the tendency in our culture at the moment to lionize empathy as the most important um, psychological capacity we could have to encourage a more moral society. He thinks that's misplaced. So empathy is actually one of those fundamental gut reaction moral intuitions that drives that divide. The known side aren't devoid of empathy. Their empathy is just directed at something else. You know, they are very, they believe themselves to be very moral. We also believe ourselves to be very moral. Um, we're, these are you know, fundamentally incompatible positions. But what um, Bloom calls attention to is, is what drives moral progress it has not been empathy. Because if it had been empathy, nothing would have changed. What drives moral progress is reason. Rational, deliberation, intellectual, uh, thought. We can use reason to overcome these innate moral tendencies. And we have done that. We've done that throughout our history. We've established um, laws and social institutions. We have established and we amend constitutions because we use our reason to overcome those uh, more uh, um, innate, um, intuitive instincts that we have. So as Aristotle uh, recognized long ago, what's so interesting about humans is our capacity for reason, which reigns overall. So I'll just end on that. Um, 
I think we drew attention to this last week, the need to engage with both emotion and reason in this debate. The no side hit hard on emotion. We cannot only address reason, we also need to address the emotional side of this debate. We engage, we acknowledge people's gut feelings, we acknowledge how they respond, what they're, they, they, we have no control over our responses to these situations, we have to acknowledge them. We have to acknowledge the role of, of difficult emotions in this, in this uh, referendum, but also try and engage that rational compassion, prevent, uh, present the data, prevent, present the evidence, that's what we know worked in the, con in the context of the Oireachtas Committee and in the uh, Citizens' Assembly. The, talking to a hard no is, is often a waste of time. It's trying to get them to change their mind on this is like asking them to change their identity, just like it would be for you. Um, and that's why we really need to dedicate, particularly at this stage in the game, our resources to those who are undecided and who can, um, who ca we can appeal to both their emotion and their uh, reason. Thank you very much. Thank you very, thank you very, very much. Um, so our next speaker is Professor Eva McLeiset, who's a professor of molecular evolution at the Smurfett Institute of Genetics uh, here at Trinity College. Um, Aoife is one of Ireland's best-known scientists uh, by any measure, uh, but as well as that, she's extremely active in the public communication of science, not just in the science itself, but in engaging, I think, with social issues in an evolving society um, from the perspective of a scientist. slides and um, so uh, I've been campaigning every spare minute I have uh, and trying to do everything I can for this uh, particular referendum so when Ivana and Moss asked me would I do this I instantly said yes even though I added the caveat that I don't really think I have um, really an academic perspective on uh, the same way as the others do in the sense that I don't think my work really informs my position here in particular. So I work in genetics, I work in evolutionary genetics, and I think possibly the only aspect, um, or the, the only aspect I see anyway where somebody might see a genetics point of view on this argument is to do with the uniqueness right, of any, of any uh, pregnancy. Um, and I think that might be where uh, some people see the, the relationship. And it's true that every, um, every pregnancy is unique. It's a unique combination of Genes. It's also true that every egg that a woman will produce throughout her whole life, and even the ones that don't be, be like mature and be like enduring ovulation, all of those are also genetically unique. And every sperm that a man produces is unique. And um, you know, Monty Python <laughs> made a song on this. Um, and I think it, it, you can overemphasize the importance of uniqueness because. In terms of our DNA, so our DNA is 3.2 billion letters long, and uh, there's four possible letter, four possible letters at each one of those positions, and um, you know I tried to calculate it today, but the computer wouldn't do it because the number is too big, 
um, because the number of possible combinations is enormous. And that's only talking about varying the letters within that size. You can also add and delete, which means that effectively there's an infinite <coughs> number of pos unique possible genetic combinations. And obviously we can't sustain that. We definitely can't compel women to bear that many babies. And so I think the idea that the uniqueness is a driving important factor is just not true at all. It also pretends that every woman can have all of the babies that she's genetically capable of producing. So some women who choose to have abortions already have some children, and this one is just you know, too many for them. Some women who choose to have an abortion don't have children yet, but they will later. So it's not preventing a child from existing in the sense that maybe this woman thinks she'd like two or three children, and she'll have two or three children, but maybe just not this one. Right? So you could argue that by forcing a, a particular pregnancy in a young person that they won't have a, another one later, if you care to argue that way, which I don't particularly, because I don't particularly care to argue from the point of view of forcing women to you know, give birth against their will. But anyway, so um, as a scientist, um, I suppose, I, I do care about facts, I think it's probably the other way around, I care about facts, therefore I became a scientist, but, um, and, uh, you know, Tomas is wearing a scientist's for a yes badge, because there's a few of us who are kind of trying to, like, place an emphasis on facts, and, um, <coughs> like, but the idea of being facts rather than emotion, but I have to also confess that I find this whole thing extremely emotional, and I find it, um, even when I'm trying to emphasize facts, I find it very emotional and sometimes you know quite hard to deal with because you know so I'm going canvassing and a lot of the undercurrent and not even undercurrent is you know that women are you know not trustworthy that they are careless and callous and it's kind of it's kind of odd because they also think that we should be raising those babies they don't think we can make decisions about having or not but in any case but uh, so I can't be totally unemotional but I will just mention what I think are perhaps some of the important facts, and you've probably heard all of this before, but um, you know, there's this, that sometimes this referendum is being phrased as, as if um, one of the options is an abortion-free Ireland, and um, that's not what exists. We don't have an abortion-free Ireland. We have actually a quite appreciable rate of abortion, so I tried to find the statistics they're obviously very patchy because we have the statistics of the women who go to the UK and give an Irish address. There's also the ones who don't give an Irish address, and then there's also the ones who go to other countries, and then there's the ones who get the abortion pill online and stuff. But around 3,000 women a year go to the UK and give an Ireland address. About 1,600 abortion pills are delivered to Ireland um, in a year. So there's about, you know, that gives you an appreciation, a rough idea. So somewhere around the three and a, uh, four and a half to 5,000 mark uh, abortions um, are happening. So um, the option here is not between an abortion-free Ireland and, abortion, and an Ireland where every woman is just having an abortion for the heck of it, which seems to be uh, the other argument. So I think that that's a reality that needs to be considered. And so um, if we think about how we got here to this point, so a little bit of history reminding people. So it was, 1983 was when the Eighth Amendment was added, and that year, uh, just before, the week before the vote took place, so I don't, I, I'm, I wasn't old enough to vote, uh, like most women of reproductive age, I wasn't old enough to vote, but I don't really remember it either, I just uh, read about it, but the week before the referendum, there was an, an, uh, news in the Irish Times that 
a woman called Sheila Hodgers had died because she became, became pregnant while undergoing cancer treatment and her cancer treatment was halted. So that wasn't, the Eighth Amendment wasn't there yet, but it was the, the philosophy and the mentality that gave rise to the Eighth Amendment that it, it was, overtook her care. And somehow that wasn't enough, I, I, I kind of can't believe that that wasn't enough for the Eighth Amendment to fail um, at the time, but it was passed as we know. And then we have the X case in 92, which was a 14-year-old rape victim, just a little girl, um, and the, she was based in, you know, she was forced, uh, she was blocked from traveling, and the ruling in that case gave rise to at least the recognition that pregnancy can be life-threatening, and when it is, it might be acceptable. But it's, um, it's also important to note that if a 14-year-old girl gets pregnant in Ireland today, if she isn't suicidal, then Ireland does nothing for her. Right? So this, the X case could still happen in a form, right? So we do nothing, and I think that's absolutely barbaric. Because another fact I can mention is that in Paraguay this year, a 14-year-old girl died in childbirth. So she was raped, obviously, because a 14-year-old can't consent. And um, it was, she was, there was no option, and there was no England to go to. Right? So that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, so another idea that tends to come up is that um, they, uh, they, they, if this passes, we're going, there's going to be some kind of free-for-all, um, because, of course, women are not worthy of any respect, and they're just going to want abortions all the time, apparently. But um, it's important to note international statistics. So the Netherlands has one of the most liberal abortion laws, and they also have one of the lowest rates of abortion globally. So making abortion available doesn't make abortions happen. And the reason, the, the, the received wisdom anyway, and what the Netherlands are doing right is that they combine it with very good access to uh, sex education and to contraception. So this is, this is, the, uh, this is the way I'd like to Ar see Ireland going. You know, we could have a lower rate of abortion than we currently do if this was all out in the open, if we dealt with sexuality and pregnancy in an open way and weren't shaming and uh, um, demonizing women all the time. And so, um, you know, so Savita was the case about five years ago. Savita's death is the one that really got me, actually. So um, that when the day that came out in the paper, I was outside the doll. It was the first time I ever stood outside the doll protesting anything. And as Tomas mentioned, I've done like, plenty of radio and different things like this. And while I was there, some of one of the radio stations came over and they put a microphone in front of me and said, would you care to say something? And I was like, yeah, I can talk on the radio. So I just started talking and I started crying really quickly. I couldn't help myself. I can't, I can't know either. Because and, um, one of the things I've seen when I've been canvassing is that people just keep throwing Savita's name out. Sorry, I guess get emotional about it even still. Um, as if it didn't happen or as if it didn't happen for this reason. And um, yeah, I find that really hard because that is one fact. And, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, if a woman dying isn't enough, like, I just don't know what else. Anyway, I think I'll stop now, considering I've done that too much. <laughs> Dr. Paula Mayock from the School of Social Science and Social Policy.
Okay, so in the next uh, 10 minutes or so, I'm going to talk about memory and biography. I will draw on my own research in a broad sense. And what I'm going to try to do is to draw attention to the kinds of discourses <coughs> and narratives um, created and embedded in our collective memories that have shaped and continue to shape how we as a society uh, uh, view women, their bodies, their reproductive health, and the management and governance of women's reproductive health. My research is qualitative, and I focused a lot on marginalised populations, particularly in the past 10 years, on young people and women who have experienced homelessness. <coughs> but I've also conducted research on sexual health, on relationships and sexuality education, and on LGBT mental health. And within all of that, I've had a particular interest in biographical approaches. So in our interviewing, we basically ask our participants to tell their life story. So it gives them a lot of control over the course of the interview. Um, biography, by definition, of course, incorporates memory. And the life stories uh, that people tell are memories. Now, as part of this, of course, engagement with the past frequently uh, involves a person's search for understanding of themselves and also for understanding of those societal conditions in which those memories are embedded. So, of course, we might say memory is beset by flaws, and it is. We don't remember everything. None of us in this room remember every part of our lives. But what people do recount um, um, in their life stories are memories that are most salient to them and that have had, had, have had an impact and or continue to have an impact on their lives. So as researchers, we're not so interested in the facts of the memory, but about how the narrator thought about that memory and now interprets and brings meaning to that memory. So I'm going to start by recounting some of my own memories because um, I realise that most people here, and it's my memories of, of the referendum in 1983, and I realise that most people here have no memory of that because some of you weren't even born. Um, so in any case, I was a young teacher, or a young teenager, in a, in a Catholic all-girls secondary school in a rural town in Ireland. We all called it the convent, and we called those who ran it as the Sisters of No Mercy. Um, that was our narrative of resistance, uh, radical or what. Um, in any case, in the period leading up to, the, to that particular referendum, I, along with my classmates, we were marched down to the only room in the school with a video recorder, um, reflecting, I suppose, the, the times and the days that were in it. And there we were shown, graf we, we were shown graphic footage of abortions and aborted fetuses. Now, for any person, I think, um, who would be you're subjected to that without explanation, without warning, and without context, it would be disturbing. But for a teenager, um, certainly doubly so. Now, the narrative was very focused on blame, and those women who had abortions were very openly denounced, uh, depicted essentially as monsters. And all of this was, of course, paralleled by the sermons from priests at Mass. Um, I, like the vast, vast majority of kids, went to Mass every Sunday. And um, similarly, there, there was a continuous condemnation, particularly around issues such as contraception and then moving on to abortion. And I suppose the source of greatest discomfort for me was this uh, depiction of women, women who didn't have a say in how their lives ought to be depicted, in fact. But I didn't have the language to put on it. But in later years, I did come to understand 
and why my feelings were so, uh, why the feelings of discomfort were so strong, <coughs> and really um, it was because it represented the shaming of women. And of course, in the years that followed, one year later we had um, uh, the Anne Lovett, we had, we had uh, the Kerry Davies, again, women on trial. And following that, as referred to, we had the X case. Um, so these events, of course, plunged the nation into something of a crisis, grappling with all sorts of definitions, right and wrong, acceptable, unacceptable. But women's transgression was really at the centre of these, um, these discussions, uh, as was motherhood, womanhood, and sexual morality. And so too was the question of where responsibility lies for societies most vulnerable and marginalised. And of course, all of this preceded the revelations about industrial schools and Magdalene laundries. Magdalene laundries, the places run in the main by, by religious communities, were the places to which fallen women were sent in Ireland. And speaking about these institutions, which ran to the late 20th century, Smith states, these institutions conceal citizens already marginalized by a number of interrelated social phenomena, illegitimacy, sexual abuse, and infanticide. So these were the women who didn't fit the model of the Irish mother and the Irish family. They were excluded and they were rendered invisible. And so to women and homelessness. And it, it's interesting because actually historically dominant constructions of women who experience homelessness, including academic representations, have depicted them as deviant and transgressive. And by implication, of course, as largely unworthy. Many of the early texts um, in the United States, in the UK, depicted these women as sexually deviant and as essentially lacking in the ability to live or function as a woman. Now, I won't delay by quoting the text directly, but basically, they were depicted as violating normative images of family and motherhood. Now, today, the language used is far more nuanced, nuanced obviously. We won't hear that in, in public or, or in, in academic texts. But um, there is evidence of continuity, and our research actually reveals this. It reveals, for example, the legacy of institutionalization, and it's the institutionalization of, of women and of the othering of women who experience homelessness, irrespective of age. So the study, we interviewed 60 women uh, in Dublin and in other locations throughout the country. We interviewed women of all ages over the age, age of 18. But we also spent long periods of it interacting with them in, in hostels and other contexts. And um, so this, of course, is a form of, uh, this form of a particular ethnographic engagement. And within that, we, as the study progressed, we introduced photography. And we asked some of the women if they would be willing to take photographs of their lives. This was to deepen our understanding. We discussed those photographs with them. So I just want to um, give the women's lives um, all, all grew up in poor, poor neighbourhoods and in households where they endured hardship, albeit even if they responded in very variable ways and diverse ways. But just to give a few, uh, uh, some examples of the findings, uh, over 70% of had experienced some form of violence or abuse as children. So these are the childhood experiences. Um, 40, over 45% were had experienced sexual abuse during childhood. Five women reported a pregnancy arising from sexual abuse during their mid to late teenage years, and six of the women reported that they had been raped during adolescence. 
And to a large extent, this pattern continued into adulthood. Um, over 90% of the women had experienced some form of violence or abuse during their lives. Some both during and uh, adulthood. Uh, 42 thirds experienced intimate partner violence, and 12 of these women had experienced violence from more, from more than one intimate partner. So I thought at this point it would be interesting just to look at some of the photographs that the women took. Now many of them, understandably and perhaps predictably, um, focused on the hostels where they resided. These were places that didn't afford privacy. You can see these are not nice settings. Um, as well as that, a lot, a lot of the women described distinct experiences of infantilization in these contexts and most felt that they had no say over their lives or futures. Their accounts also revealed the extent of their stigma, of the, to which they felt stigmatized. And stigma is, of course, a social process. It aims to exclude, reject, shame, and devalue people on the basis of a particular characteristic. Now, a lot of these women had been navigating this institutional, the, the hospitals are institutions in my mind, the same way as psychiatric hospitals are. And they had been, in fact, navigating these institutional contexts very often for years, such that their homelessness was not, uh, of course, resolved. <coughs> four, four of the women had spent time in an industrial school as children, and a number of others had spent time in mother and baby homes. So um, this is a photograph taken by Fanula, who was 58. She. Um, was born in a mother and baby home and later transferred to an industrial school. Uh, she described herself as totally in, 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 uh, institutionalized and she told of the kind of memories evoked by one of, the, by this photograph that she took on the street. Um, here she says, I think of the past when I look at that and the regret associated with it, of a nation of people, of what happened to children in the past. So there could be a lot of connotations to the words, but it speaks to me personally regarding the institutional child abuse and the regret of the past and the shame of what happens to children. Does that make sense? <coughs> now, Fanula was an avid reader of poetry. She loved Patrick Kavanagh and talked about Patrick Kavanagh's poetry quite a lot. Um, and here she talks about the memories that this photograph ev evokes. This photo makes me feel sad, sad, sad because of what it conjures up. An isolated child that had no human attachment and depended on nature for beauty and for feelings. Now, like many other of the women, um, Fanula's biography was sh shaped by apparatuses of the church and state. And th these women did resist, and but often to their detriment, because they would flee the hospital system independently, and then only to return at a later stage. The reason they did this was that um, they didn't feel people were helping them, and that the challenges they faced were frequently um, uh, uh, left unresolved, and the places they found themselves in reinforcing the legacies of their biographical past. So to conclude, um, I want to return to where I started, to memory and biography. Memory and the legacy of memory shapes all of us as individuals. Um, and of course, collective memory shapes us as a society and what we as citizens come to regard as acceptable or alternatively reject. We shouldn't choose to ignore the realities of the past, our memories that constitute the history of our present. 
Biography isn't fixed, it's evolving, ever-changing. But for many women, of course, all women, it is impacted by the structural discrimination and stigma directly associated with legislative and constitutional frameworks that govern uh, women's reproductive health and, right, and rights. We need to create new memories and new biographies. And as a society, we do have the capacity to carve out a space that can shape memories the, the, the memories and biographies of future generations of women and girls. We can do this by respecting women's bodily integrity and personhood, by respecting private life without discrimination and the threat of punishment, and by respecting um, women's ability to make informed autonomous decisions about their bodies and reproductive health, which of course are at the core of women's right to physical and psychological integrity. This is a critical historical moment, and we need to tell a different story. Thank you. Thank you, Paula. I don't think you could have gotten a better integration of uh, perspectives on the, issue, on the issue at stake. Um, this group was intended to be dealing with the issue of, of fact and fact-based reason um, in the debate on the Eighth Amendment, but I think has been um, beautifully articulated by this panel of speakers, is that we also have to pay a lot of attention to the uh, personal side and the emotional side that is equally a part of uh, decision-making. This is particularly relevant in this country uh, because while science and philosophy and reason can give a reason for a person to abandon religion, cannot replace the role that religion had in that person's life. And when a lot of people um, are concerned with us campaigning on this too liberally, they will cite issues with Brexit and with the US presidential election, and there is a risk that if we browbeat people too much if we cross a line and actually condescend to people, then we alienate them very quickly, even if we are right about particular facts. And so I think it's extremely important that we, we use this opportunity to discuss um, how we can have a meaningful conversation with people that's based on our, our facts and experiences, but with properly engaging in the real issues. Now, we, it is five minutes to the hour, but we do have the room pretty much for as long as we can.